Uh, well, good evening. Uh, thanks for being here uh, tonight. If you uh, came to church hoping for a, like a little emotional pick-me-up, that probably wasn't the passage you were hoping to uh, hear read just now, but we'll try and make some sense of it and see why it actually is uh, an incredible encouragement to us this evening um, that our lovely Jesus who heals the lame people also. Uh, actually, I noticed the title. It was, it was slightly different to what I imagined, Woe on the Pharisees. I thought it was Woe to the Pharisees, but Woe on the Pharisees. It sounds heavier, doesn't it? Like, Woe on you. Woe on you, Joe. I mean, that's, that's, it's quite like, Phew. I picked on James earlier, so um, there you are, it's Jonah. And it's so, Woe on you. Woe on you, says Jesus. I mean, I think we probably ought to pray before we get into this and make sense of this. Lord, we just beg you to reveal what you need to reveal to us this evening. And as we look at this passage again tonight, I pray that you'll reveal our own hearts as well. I pray that you'll be speaking to every one of us in this room and that as a result of this encounter with you in Scripture, uh, that we will be better equipped to serve you and follow you, to be the people you've made us to be and to be light in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. So the, the sort of passage we tend to like uh, from Jesus is the one where he says something like, you are the light of the world, yeah? Uh, and don't hide your lamp under a bushel. In fact, you can change the world by shining. And that actually is the passage that comes immediately uh, before the one we had, except it carries on a little bit in a slightly awkward way. So the verse 34 of uh, chapter 11, if you've got your Bibles open, says this, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is also full of light. You're the light of the world. And when your eye is healthy, then you are going to be healthy as well. But when they, your eyes are unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a light lamp shines on you. But if it's got caught in darkness, then you're in a mess. And then he goes for a meal with these Pharisees and scribes. And it's, uh, it's like a come dine with me gone wrong because he then uh, basically sits down and either he reads their thoughts or they say something or they mutter something under their breath uh, and he answers them. And basically what they're muttering about is that he hasn't done the ceremonial Jewish uh, washing thing. Now, we've got used to being quite good on hygiene, haven't we, in the last, uh, the last couple of years with COVID and stuff. We, uh, we like to rub our fingers in alkaline drip and all this sort of thing and to try and sort it out. Um, and I think probably Jesus probably was perfectly hygienic in the culture, but what he hasn't done is the ceremonial Jewish washing. And they're picking him up on that and they're criticizing him either to his face or under their breath, or he's sort of reading their thoughts as he seems to do at times. And uh, so he launches into uh, woe on you, number one. Now, woe on you, number one, it goes like this. Now then, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, which means they're uh, more hygienic than, than my family, who leave it all on the side and doesn't make it in a dishwasher. Um, but inside, you are full of greed and wickedness. Woe on you. You're, you're good on the outside, you can make your house look nice before someone comes around, but what's going on on the inside? And uh, I preached on this twice today, and in the morning I was sort of doing the thing where we, you know, I just sort of point out that we're all sort of guilty of this, but I want, this evening, I want to sort of let these woe on you sort of register a bit. It's actually the more I think about it. Yeah, I mean, how often is that 
the condition of, of me. You know, I'm presenting okay on the outside, not that okay, but trying to, but on the inside, what might be going on? Woe on you, he says to the Pharisees. Uh, you foolish people, did you not know that the one who made the outside made the inside as well? And then he gives an anecdote to it, an antidote to it rather. But now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything else will be clean for you. So there's a woe on you. You're on a mess on the inside. Here's an antidote. Be nice to the poor. Be generous to the poor. I'm like, oh, how am I doing on that one? <laughs> so we've got two challenges from Jesus this evening, and we haven't even got going yet. Because uh, he doesn't even pause for breath. He doesn't even let them reply, so it seems. He then goes on, woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth. And imagine what we're going to say next. A tenth of your possessions, a tenth of your wealth, a tenth of your inheritances. <laughs> He goes, a tenth of your mint, your rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs. <laughs> so when you're chopping up a tenth of your income, the last thing you get to is that little potted plant that you have on your windowsill that's been dying since you bought it in Sainsbury's. <laughs> and anyway, these guys chop up it and make sure 10% of that little garden plant is going to God and make sure everyone can see that they're doing it. And he says, but you neglect justice and the love of God. The, the antique antidote to that would be justice and the love of God. And he says, you should have practiced the latter, loving God and doing justice, without leaving the former, which is giving you 10%, including your herbs. Undone. Jesus doesn't mind that they're giving away 10% of their herbs. But he's saying, don't stop justice and loving God. And he's going to give them another whack now. Uh, another, another round with Jesus in the ring. Woe to you Pharisees. You love the most important seats in the synagogue and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. <laughs> I don't know how we translate that. Uh, woe to you. You love getting the most likes on Instagram or, or followers on Twitter. Or you love it when people notice you. Or you love it when you're called out from uh, the front in a workplace situation. You love it when you're praised by people. You love it when people invite you into their inner circle. You love it when other people go, you're, you're the man. You're, you're, you're my girl, you're the person. You love that praise of people. And he doesn't give any antidote to that one. He then says, woe to you because you're like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. In other words, when people come within six feet of you, they get sort of polluted, spiritually polluted. You carry a sort of an air around you that can seep up from the soil and pollute people because they've walked over a spiritually dead body. And these are people who try really hard. Actually, a lot of the scholarship on Pharisees in the last 50 years or so has pointed out that they're, you know, they're not sort of like the wicked men of the, of the ancient Near East. Some of these are people who were desperately trying to do what was right by God. They just got very caught up in, in this life and now. And, uh, and they're bruised and battered from what Jesus has said. They can't reply. So their mates, who don't normally like them, but the, these teachers in the law, Say, Jesus, when you insult that lot, you're also insulting us. And Jesus doesn't pause. He just starts laying into them as well. Woe to you. You build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom says, I'll send them prophets and apostles, some of whom will kill and others will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be responsible for the blood of all the prophets that's been shed from the beginning of the world, from Genesis 
So Zechariah, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it. And he carries on. Woe to you, experts in the law. You've taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves have not entered into knowledge or entered into God's kingdom, and you've hindered others from entering in it as well. It's like not a very good dinner guest, is it? I mean, we don't know, but I mean, this may have all happened before the entree, before the starter or the first meze platter, whatever they had in first century Jerusalem. This is like the intro to a meal. The next verse jumps in that when Jesus went outside the Pharisees and teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely, etc. But you've got to imagine they probably sat through three or four courses in the meantime. I mean, imagine what they were saying. I mean, imagine the, the highlights tour on Come Dine With Me when they're focusing in on the faces of the Pharisees and then they go out and do those vox pops about how they're feeling. You know, they go out to that upstairs bedroom and go, I wasn't expecting him to say that. I've been preparing this meal for, you know, I'd, Jesus. I mean, what is he like? Have you ever heard people say Jesus is a good teacher, but I don't think he's much more? And if he's a good teacher, what on earth is he doing saying stuff like this? He's just laying it on into these people. You say, well, you know, he just, he just had an eye for hypocrites. He had, he had an eye for hypocrites. These, these religious leader type people like, like you, Richard, up the front, he had an eye for how you could be conning everyone. Are you wear a mask sometimes? You're faking it. You say, fake it till you make it. It's not good enough. You can, you can see, you could see you, so he exposed you. But you only have to go back a couple of paragraphs to see it wasn't just the, uh, the religious leaders in Jesus' radar. Look at this, uh, verse 29. As the crowds increase, the, the whole corpus of people get bigger. As the crowds increase, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. <laughs> this is a wicked generation just looking out at everyone. It's not particularly nice to everyone, is it, either? This is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. And who was Jonah? He was that guy from your Sunday school, if you got the privilege of going to it, the one who gets swallowed by a whale or a big fish. It's been said whether or not it was a literal big fish uh, is a red herring. Um, but it's a story, probably a real story, but a story in the Bible that shows us a man who gets consumed and hidden away for three days and then comes back to life again and goes and preaches repentance. And Jonah goes off and preaches repentance to the people of a town called Big Fish, which is Nineveh, and they repent. And it says the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because the Ninevites, the Big Fish lot, repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here, saying, you guys, this crowd is a wicked lot. Elsewhere, Jesus uh, looks at people's hearts and says he wouldn't entrust himself to people because he saw they were wicked. And uh, I suppose in the little time I've got left, I want to try and persuade you that this is actually really good news for us. Um, because it's not such an easy sell, is it? It's a much easier sell to have the Jesus who says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And you come to Jesus for a cuddle with Christ on the carpet, as Simon Ponsby puts it. You know, come, and, come up the front and be ministered to if you're feeling weary today. Come and just feel his gentle touch releasing you. If you feel burdened or ashamed, just come and 
and we'll pray for you and the burden will lift or the shame will go. But what about if you come up the front and he looks you in the eye and goes, woe, <laughs> woe on you, woe on you, woe on you. How, how does that feel? And that's clearly what Jesus was doing with these people around him. Woe on you. What a crowd. What a wicked, degenerate crowd. So why is it good news? Well, the, the amazing reason it's good news is because he really knows us. He really, really knows us. And the sign of Jonah, and that someone could go into a whale for three days and then rise again, is a sign of the cross and the resurrection. And actually, if Jesus can look at me and go, woe on you, and then still love me enough to die for me, the price he's paying on the cost is the full price that is needed for my sins. See, if Jesus was just looking around at us going, oh, you're quite nice, you're quite nice, you're quite nice, you're quite nice, all right, fine. He wouldn't need to pay much of a price for us. But in Bible terms, it was when we were God's enemy that Christ died for us. We were his enemies, Romans 5, and he died for us. He looks into all of our hearts and he can see the mess in there. He can see the pretense in there. He can point it out. He can say, whoa. He can speak to people who are powerful and say, you're a hypocrite. You're trying to get people to think you're better than you are. One of John Wesley's uh, questions that he asked himself every day, in fact, his first question uh, out of 21 examining questions was, am I consciously or subconsciously giving people the impression that I am better than I am? <laughs> Amazing question. Am I consciously or subconsciously giving people the impression I'm better than I actually am? He didn't want to be a hypocrite. But Jesus factored in even our hypocrisy, our utter mess. And he said, okay, I'll take that into that tomb. I'll bury that forever. And I'll die to save you. Jesus didn't come into the world going, ooh, you're wonderful. <laughs> I'm just desperate to save you. He came into the world going, crikey, what a mess. What a wicked and depraved generation. And underneath it all, you're also wonderful. And I want to save you. He could see beyond the mess. And could see what we could be. And he still wanted to save us. He still wanted to save us. He wasn't conned by us. He got that we were wicked. And he still wanted to save us. So what do we do when we've, you know, been trying to walk with Jesus for a while? We've had our sins paid for on the cross. We've had it all washed away. We've had our burdens removed. And yet we're still a little bit worried that if he came close up to us, he'd say, whoa. <laughs> I remember having that experience when I was, I was 17 and coming uh, a pastor had come back to England from Romania where I'd been converted and I was 
about to see this man, Adi Popper, and he was just this holy, holy man in my teenage imagination. So I imagine he really, truly was. But for me, he represented Jesus himself. And I was petrified to go and see this guy because I was all too aware of the shame and sin and mess that I got myself into in the nine months since I'd seen the guy and had this sort of radical conversion. But even after this wonderful infilling of the spirit that I'd had and this deep penitence that I'd felt, nine months later, I was petrified of what Addy Popper, aka Jesus Christ, would say to me when I looked him in the eyes. And I'll always remember how that weekend worked out and I wonder if this might be helpful for some of you here. Because the first thing that happened was I went to the Friday youth group where I got there, Addy was playing on the keyboard, playing worship songs, old vineyard worship songs that he translated into Romanian. And he used to use them in street outreach. He'd just go to a, a city square after Ceausescu's reign had finished. And he'd take his keyboard with a battery and he'd start playing these sort of classic old vineyard type songs like Abba Father, Let Me Be, that sort of thing. And then he, once people gathered to hear him singing, he would uh, stand up and preach and say, you need to repent. And people would come and they'd form a little church, a little house church. Amazing to see. This is a man who was a top-class musician. He was uh, orchestral level, could have been in Bucharest in a big orchestra. Uh, but he was earning, I think it was about $40 a month to raise his family on at the time. He had a, a crown of thorns above his kitchen door to remind him of who he was serving. And uh, Addy came, he was playing that piano and I walked towards him and do you know what I saw in his face just unadulterated love and grace and I was drawn to him I just wanted to go oh I failed but there wasn't time to do it because he was like Richard come and sing so we were singing and we were joining in and it was glorious and then the next day happened by by God's accident to be the Church Holy Spirit Away Day on the Alpha Course. Now, my friend Addy was not a charismatic by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, he was a cessationalist. He didn't believe in the charismatic gifts carrying on beyond the apostles. Uh, so we, we went and sat in a hall, a church hall, listening to Nicky Gumbel on the VHS videos talking about tongues and the Toronto blessing and all this sort of stuff. I don't think Addy was paying much attention, but he was playing his songs. And then he played uh, this one song, which is a, a psalm in the Bible. And it's a psalm that says, um, um, uh, talks about how I love you more than gold or silver. <laughs> Only you can satisfy. Do you know the song? As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. You alone are my heart's desire and I long to worship you. And I was like, I can't sing it anymore. Because what had happened to me nine months previously was I'd gone from that, that, you know, that teenage lad who couldn't sing in church, who had to be dragged along to church when we still made it, to suddenly like, wanting to sing the songs and wanting to read the scriptures and wanting to read. And I got through the whole Bible in three months. I was radically converted. But I couldn't sing, I want you more than gold or silver. <laughs> I couldn't sing, only you will satisfy, because my heart was a divided heart. And it made me incredibly sad. I think I've listened much to the teaching tapes, but I've listened to my heart being broken because I couldn't sing to my Savior and I felt like I'd lost the best thing in my life, chasing after stuff that didn't satisfy. 
And so I grabbed a hymn book and a Bible and I went up to the balcony of this little Baptist church somewhere uh, on the Sussex-Surrey borders. And I just tried to sing. And I tried to read and I found myself on my knees in this balcony um, pouring my heart out to God again, going, I'm so sorry, I'm sorry. And over the, the weeks and months before, I found that my heart had got harder and I found as my heart got harder, I criticized the Christians around me more. <laughs> Have you ever done that? When you were off key with God, I was like, oh, the church is so bad because... And I'd just spew it out on anyone who'd listen. And as I got up in that balcony, I was like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm broken. And then suddenly God's love and grace poured in and I was baptized in his spirit. And I... I started to sing in tongues in a fresh language I'd never learned. I was just singing and rejoicing. I'd gone from miserable to like, wow. I walked down and people said, your face is shining. What's happened to you? And I was transformed. But that wasn't the end of the weekend. The next day was Sunday and I went along to Sunday morning and the pastor said, "Uh, someone's going to be preaching in the evening, but it's a bit of a strange preach. Um, he's been working on it, and he really feels that God said something to him prophetically. And uh, I don't know who your, um, you know, your ranking of uh, preachers is in this church. Uh, I wouldn't want to affect it, but we had a guy whose name was Roger, uh, a lovely man, really diligent, faithful, plodding sort of character. Um, but you know, when he preached, it wasn't the most dramatic thing that was ever likely to happen in your life. And I was like, oh no, it's Roger preaching. Uh, But I I went along because I just wanted to be there. I was hungry for God. And he said, uh, it was my turn to preach tonight. And the set text was the minor prophets, Ezra, the story of Ezra in the Old Testament. And he said, I was reading it through and I got to Ezra 9 and 10, which is the story of how the Israelites were told to leave behind the the women that they'd been chasing after and be pure. And it was like God just gave me divine dictation. (laughs) And I just started writing. And this is, again, one of the least charismatic people you could ever imagine. He said, nothing like this has ever happened to me in my life. And he explained that. And then he started to read the passage. And I was just convicted to the core. (laughs) Woe on me. Woe on me. And I burst into tears before I even heard what he read. And I went out to the kitchen and this 78-year-old organist came and grabbed me and he saw what was going on. He said, you know, oh, you know, Richard, I just want you to know it doesn't get any easier. (laughs) 60-year age gap between the two of us, that doesn't get any easier. But you know, by the end of that evening, I knew that I had to take an action as well as just cry my eyes out and receive God's grace. And I had to ring this uh, particular girl up and say, sorry, I can't go to the ball with you. And there was a whole string of things there. And for all the times in my life where God's given me the words to say, that was the one time in my life where I just didn't have the words as I picked up the phone and said to her, I can't come. I couldn't, God didn't make it easy on me. (laughs) He let me do it in my own strength. So I got this lesson that actually I shouldn't stray away from him. I couldn't stray away from him. I mustn't stray away from him. 
So I learned a lot that weekend about the kindness of God and that initial invitation, but also about the ruthlessness of God, the surgeon's knife of God, the woe on you of God, the what would it be like if I take my Holy Spirit away from you of God. I remember a friend who had grown up Christian getting to a point in her relationship with God where she was a bit fed up of being the good one. You know, any, anyone grown up being the good one? Uh, oldest child syndrome or, or whatever it may be. But, and she was like, oh, I just want to know what it's like to not know you, God. <laughs> I mean, pray a very stupid prayer, which was basically, please bugger off for a bit, God, <laughs> so I can see what it's like without you. And I remember her just expressing the devastation of that loss. Because it came in an instant, that sense of absence. But for most of us, that absence doesn't come in an instant, does it? It comes because of a gentle hardening or a change of habits. Or in the words of Jesus in Luke 11, because of what our eyes are letting in. And we're not gazing on his loveliness. We're caught in other stuff. And when Jesus says, woe on you, At first glance, it sounds like an awful thing. But actually, if you've ever sat under the judgment of God, it's probably the most transforming, wonderful thing that's ever happened to you. To gaze into his holiness and go, woe is me. I'm an ungodly person. And then to see his gracious gentleness as he picks you up. See, the woe in this passage is, is there, but it doesn't have to be there forever because anyone who will accept that sign of Jonah and go, I need a savior, can be completely transformed. And anyone who's already been transformed but has found they've slipped way away from God in intervening years can come back afresh like on a night like tonight as the band plays such wonderful worship and go, yeah, my goodness me, I need you again. I want to come back to the heart of worship. I want to breathe again. I want to dream again, love again, worship again, be free again. I really want you, Jesus. And this time, I want you on your own terms. Let's pray together.